and hello everybody welcome to a brand new episode of let's odd uh, with your I almost sound like a game show host <laughs> let's odd with your host johnny townsend and chris chavez thank you johnny thank you tell him what he could win <laughs> <laughs> a one-way ticket to creepsville <laughs> population you <laughs> how's it going man Going pretty good. What about yourself? Oh, I'm just excited to get back to that side, man. This is one of my favorite, absolutely favorite things to do. Uh, every couple, every week, actually, because we get to do history creeps now. That side. Uh, so I'm just looking forward to it. I love this show. Yeah, same here. That's odd. Is almost kind of becoming one of my. I'm kind of liking it. You know, no offense to uh, history creeps. <laughs> I'm kind of liking it a little more just because it's just more out there. <laughs> I mean, last week I got. I mean, last time I got to talk about. A, a city that keeps keeps electing goats as mayors. So this is pretty great. <laughs> that is amazing. The, my story yeah. tonight isn't as cool as that. Mine is uh mine's mine's really intriguing though, and it's uh put it this way. Um, imagine yourself in the 1800s, right? Okay, and, all right. And, and the, what head, am I wearing? You wake up in the morning, and the headline well, they they had new newspapers, right? Yeah, they had newspapers. Extra, extra, yeah. right? <laughs> extra, extra. Read all about it. Uh, <laughs> Fifty cents. <laughs> Man to stand trial for murdering ghost. Okay, you have my attention. That's where I'm taking you tonight. But before we get there, I would wanted to just throw out there. Uh, I don't know what I want to throw out there. Well, it's a good sentence. Don't you love those things? Strong. Don't you yeah. love when you got something coming and then all of a sudden there's that wall and you're like, oh. It's great for <laughs> podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you want to just go on, just dive right in, get right into the right. story then? Well, I want to hear the story, but now I'm really wanting to know what you were going to say. Oh, 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 oh. You know what it was? This is what it was. It was my little preface, this little thing that I'm not really uh, ashamed of whatsoever. A lot of times when uh, we've discussed this before that I like to sit down and kind of write out a, a little narrative, how I'm going to read it or how I'm going to present uh, my story. Sometimes I'll find a good article and like, remember the story about the girl that was frozen solid? Yes. I just read it straight out of the article, uh, doing voices and all. I'm not going to do voices tonight, but um, <laughs> but I have no I'm – not, I'm not ashamed of that. If I find a really good article that has all the good information, what's the point of me sitting down trying to find another creative way to say it when the person who did it did such a good job? Uh, I'll actually – I mean, I give them the credit. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's also laziness. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could call it that too, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but this, see, I came across um, this story, and I don't remember where I heard it, but I had to look it up online. And when I did, I found uh, obviously the Wikipedia that, you know, that's the first thing everybody sees. And mostly that's the first thing everyone clicks just to get the info on. Uh, but then I looked into more articles and, and blogs and stories about it. Uh, but I found one website, crimemagazine.com, that the, um, Martin Bagoli, I'm hoping I'm saying his name right, he wrote this a couple years ago, this article. And the way he wrote it um, was amazing, dude. He tells the story just, I mean, very, it's very descriptive. It's, it's real nice, but he gives all the facts. And um, I was appreciative of that because a lot of the other things left out a lot of stuff that I didn't see in this article. Um, so the story that I'm going to tell you tonight, uh, is, is about the Hammersmith ghost murder case. Um, I was a little bit misleading when I said earlier that a ghost was murdered. So you ready for the story? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. All right. Superstition continued to play a major part in the lives of many in the early 19th century England. And there was a widespread belief in ghosts and evil spirits. 
Not surprisingly, therefore, a sense of panic spread throughout London district of Hammersmith in the final two months of 1803, when reports began to emerge of an almost nightly sighting of a ghostly apparition intent of frightening passers-by, be they men, women, or children. The specter was thought by some to be the spirit of a man who 12 months earlier had committed suicide by slashing his throat. He was buried in a local churchyard despite the belief that such individuals should not be interred in consecrated ground, for if they were, if, for if they, were they would be unable to rest at peace. Most of those who had seen it described a figure in a large white shroud. Others said it sometimes wore a calfskin wrapped around its body and had large glass-like staring eyes. It was rumored that two women, one elderly and the other heavily pregnant, had been so terrified on meeting the ghost that they took to their beds and died of fright a few days later. It was also reported that a wagoner driving a team of eight horses had been so shaken on seeing it that his 16 passengers had been put in serious danger after he lost control of the carriage. These you say wagoner? Yeah, a wagoner. Is that Isn't it? That's a weird. That's a, like, what do you do for a living? Wagoner. <laughs> I wagon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> ah, wagon. Uh, it says, these and other such tales were never substantiated, but brewer Thomas Groom provided a vivid account of his encounter. He was walking through a local churchyard at night and was grabbed by the throat from behind. There was a struggle during which he felt a shroud as, if he, as he turned around and the ghost disappeared behind tombstones. Then on December 29th, William Girdler, a night watchman, saw the figure and gave chase as it ran along the narrow lanes it removed the shroud enabling it to move faster and avoid capture this encouraged more men to take to the streets at night but they did not believe it was ghosts they were determined to rid their neighborhood of this menace responsible for causing so much distress and alarm and among them was 29 29 year old excise officer francis smith so a few minutes after 10 o'clock on the night of January 3rd, 1804, 32-year-old plasterer Thomas Millwood called at his parents' home in Hammersmith. He was wearing his work clothes, linen trousers, a waistcoat, and an apron, all recently washed and very white. His mother and father retired to their bed, and Thomas sat up with his sister Anne until they heard the watch shout out the hour at 11. He decided to go home, and Anne watched from the doorway as he set off walking along Black Lion Lane. Okay, I lied. I think I'm going to do voices. This is going to be fun. Yeah, you have to. So, within seconds, she heard a man's voice shout out, Damn you! Who are you? What do you want? I'll shoot if you don't speak! This was followed almost immediately by a gunshot. Anne called... Boo, boo. <laughs> <laughs> Anne called I'll do the, I'll do, I'll do the Foley work. <laughs> Anne called out to Thomas, but he did not reply, and deeply worried, she went in search of him. After walking a short distance, she found him lying on the ground, his face covered with blood and horribly disfigured. Taking his hand, she urged him to speak, but there was no response, and she realized he was dead. Already at the scene was a small group of men, which included wine merchant John Locke, William Girdler and Francis John Locke. Yeah, and Francis Smith. Like the guy from Lost. Sounds like it, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's very lost in time. Uh, I wonder if that's where they got the name. <laughs> the circumstances Ooh. which led to her brother's death were soon revealed. Earlier that evening, the night watchman had met Smith, who was carrying his gun, a fowling piece. So I'm assuming, is that a, a gun used to shoot birds, like shoot fowl? 
or maybe it, maybe the bullets are birds. It shoots birds. At <laughs> Smith said he was watching out for the <laughs> imposter ghost, and Girdler promised to join him after he had completed his other duties. It was shortly after calling out the hour at 11 p.m. that he heard the gunshot. It was also heard by John Locke, who a few moments later was approached by a greatly distressed Francis Smith. He told him he had shot a man and asked him to return to the scene of the tragedy with him. He did so and discovered the plasterer's body, and they were soon joined by the night watchman and Anne Millwood. Smith surrendered to the constable, and the corpse was carried back to the Black Lion Inn, where it was examined by surgeon Mr. Fowler. At the inquest, he confirmed death was due to a gunshot wound to the left lower jaw and damage was caused to the spinal cord, killing him instantly. The coroner's jury returned a verdict of willful murder at the hands of Smith, who was committed at Newgate Prison to await his trial. Two days after the shooting, local boot and shoemaker John Graham admitted he was the Hammersmith ghost. He explained that he adopted the disguise to frighten his apprentices, who had been terrifying his three children with ghost stories. Graham surrendered to the magistrates, who were unsure of the legal position, and granted him bail so that he could seek guidance. There is no record of any further action being taken against him. So before I continue, just let's think about this. There's a time... now. First of all, it's a time when you need a watchman walking around the streets screaming out that it's 11 o'clock at night. Can you imagine if you go to bed at like 1030 and you're just yeah. falling asleep and all of a sudden it's like 11 o'clock. You're like, God, yeah. Jesus, God, what the? And all is well. <laughs> is that yeah. what they used to call that out, right? Yeah. Yeah. All is yeah. quiet. Not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so it's a time when that's happening. So I'm assuming it was we had it was when they had the uh, the flames in the in the lights, the the street lights, the lanterns, right? Yeah. So you're talking about that kind of setting at night, in which people are seeing this white shroud that's terrifying people, you know, and it, and it, and they're superstitious. It is a ghost. It's a ghost of this dude that committed suicide. So now you know they go off. Uh, imagine like you're a part of this party that's trying to hunt down whoever this is that's trying to terrorize the neighborhood, right? You end up shooting a guy on accident because of it. A couple days later, this other dude's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> By the way, that ghost was me. I was just, <laughs> look, listen, for real. I was just um trying to scare my apprentices. See, I walked in. They were scaring the crap out of my kids. I'm like, you know what? What can I do? I can teach them a lesson, put a shroud over me. Uh, it went a little far. Sorry, your brother's dead. <laughs> All right, you're forgiven. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what? <laughs> what? And then nothing else. He, he like he turns himself in. They're like, "All right, thanks." Meanwhile, this guy's sitting in jail now. You, you know, awaiting prison. Um. So here's the trial. You ready to hear about this trial? Oh, yes. I'm very intrigued. <laughs> Smith's trial took place one week later, and although he admitted firing the fatal shot, he entered a not guilty plea. Nobody had witnessed the actual shooting, and reading the trial transcript confirms that essentially the Crown relied on the defendant's own account of what had occurred. The Crown in terms of, um, I guess that's what they call the magistrate, magistrates, the royal uh, court in England. Uh the leading witnesses for the prosecution were John Locke, William Girdler, and Anne Millwood. Locke told of meeting Smith shortly after the shot was fired in a genuinely distressed state and how he willingly surrendered himself to the constable. The night watchman recalled his agreement to meet with Smith on the night and how after the shooting he had cooperated fully and that he had always regarded him as an honest young man. 
The bereaved sister told a court of hearing Smith challenge her brother, but insisted that the shot followed so soon afterwards that, in her opinion, Thomas would not have had sufficient time to surrender or explain who he was. In his defense, Smith made a brief statement in which he acknowledged that he knew he was not dealing with a ghost. He challenged the man twice to stop and give his name, but he had simply continued to advance towards him. Smith described fearing for his safety in a state of panic, not knowing what the man he had confronted would do. He shot him. A number of witnesses were called who spoke of his good character. Thomas Groom also appeared, and his testimony made it clear that he had been terrified by his experience and that the sense of concern was real throughout Hammersmith. So uh, this guy is just basically saying, look, I mean, I knew it wasn't a ghost, obviously, but this guy wasn't stopping. It was like the stand your ground law, the Florida stand your ground law. Yeah. So, however, perhaps the most important defense witness was Phoebe Fulbrook, the mother-in-law of Thomas Millwood, the dead guy. Uh, he and his wife had lived with her, and she told the court of a discussion she had with him on Saturday before the shooting. He told her he was wearing his work clothes one night and had frightened two ladies and a gentleman who passed him on a coach. The man called out he was a ghost, So, uh, to which Thomas mockingly replied that he was no more a ghost than the other man was. This caused Mrs. Fulbrook to urge him to wear a great coat when on his way to, uh, to or from work. She was aware that groups of armed men were now patrolling the area and she feared he might be mistaken for the ghost by one of them and something bad may happen. Events proved her concerns were justified by her son-in-law, uh, but her son-in-law had scoffed at the suggestion. So what do you think happens? Do you think they're going to convict this guy uh, of murder or do you think he's going to go free? You know, I could see why this would be a tough, a tough one. I mean, it's not just like an open and shut case, though. I think what it would boil down to is somebody did, as you called him, ended up a dead guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we, you know, even if you don't mean to murder someone, you still, you know, you still got to pay the price for it. Yeah. Here's um. this is this is what's interesting. The verdict actually ends up setting precedent because. At the time, there was nothing to judge this on, no, nothing to base it on, so they couldn't say, okay, this is how we're going to move forward with this case. So they decide they decide on this case, but then moving forward uh, is, when, is when this really continues to come up. So the verdict, this is what this says. The Lord Chief Baron took time to, uh, in his summoning up to the jury to explain why one of only two verdicts, murder or acquittal, was possible. He emphasized that for a murder to occur, malice must be present. But this does not mean that the killer had to know the victim, and he gave two examples. An individual might fire a gun into a room full of strangers and kill one of them, or a killer might shoot a gun but miss the intended target and kill another person unintentionally. Malice is present in both instances, as it was in the Smith case. The judge continued by highlighting significant issues the jury must consider. Namely, Smith was not acting in self-defense, nor was the shooting accidental. So basically everything you said. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, at the time, Millwood was not committing an offense, and even if he had shot John Graham, the supposed ghost, there would have been no accept acceptable reason for doing so either, as he was not committing a serious felony such as robbery, much a far less serious misdemeanor, which would have resulted in a small fine. So the jury goes, I'm going to paraphrase the rest, the jury goes, deliberates, comes back. So the judge says, listen, I'm not going to listen to anything else, but you acquit him or you charge him for murder, right? Yeah. They come back and say guilty of manslaughter. Judge says, no, <laughs> go back, <laughs> murder or acquittal, right? They go back. Yeah. They come back guilty of murder. 
He is sentenced to hang and be dissected on the following Monday. Smith, well, <laughs> yeah, Smith almost fainted and crying loudly had to be carried from the dock by the tank, the turnkeys. However, the Lord Chief Baron, who was fully aware of the great public interest in the case and support for the accused, added, quote, The case, gentlemen, shall be referred to his majesty immediately. By 7 o'clock that evening, the sentence had been respited during His Majesty's pleasure and was quickly commuted to one year's imprisonment with hard labor. On July 14th, Smith was granted a full pardon. Now, here you go. Despite uh, Smith escaping the gallows and having his good name restored, uh, there was widespread belief that the outcome was unsatisfactory as the case had exposed a flaw in the legal code. This centered on the lack of a defense available to an individual acting in good faith and believing action, including violence, was necessary. But having misunderstood a situation, and the Hammersmith ghost case was mentioned in a number of trials. Uh, so basically it's saying that um, there's nothing to protect someone who, if they truly believe something bad's happening and they want to do something to help, uh, and it requires something as as much uh, as forceful as violence to help, which could result in somebody being hurt or even dying, uh, there's nothing yeah. to protect that person who was just trying to help, the Good Samaritan thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It is. So here's the thing. Finally, the Court of Appeals settled the matter in 1984 in the matter of Regina and Williams. Gladstone Williams saw a man dragged, dragging a youth who was screaming out for help along a street with what he considered to be excessive violence. Believing the youngster to be the victim of a serious assault, Williams hit and injured the supposed attacker, hoping to prevent further harm being caused. However... Williams had misread the situation for his victim was attempting to detain the youth, the actual offender, until the police arrived. Williams was arrested and subsequently convicted of assault, but appealed. The aftermath of this is that the appeal was successful and it was established that if an individual believed mistakenly that force was necessary to protect him or herself or to prevent a crime from being committed, then so long as that belief was reasonably held and the prosecution could not prove otherwise, no crime could be said to have taken place. All because of a Hammersmith ghost. Huh. <laughs> it's odd. It's pretty odd, huh? I mean, it wasn't super odd, but I just thought, like, this is, like, first there's a ghost involved. This guy's shooting people. And then, like, he's, you know, put on. He's, he's going to be hung and dissected. But within hours, it's commuted all the way down to a year with hard labor. Yeah. And then it goes yeah. on to change law, you know, the, like it changes law and how, how we how we prosecute and protect people who are trying to help. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure yours is going to be much more <laughs> odd and entertaining. Well, mine's very different from yours. <laughs> uh, we're going to go to World War Two, Chris. Yes. And obviously, you know, if you look in your history books, that's a, you know, I'm going <laughs> to marginalize it when i say it was a pretty big deal uh you know and i'm going to we're going to go to the imperial japanese army and an intelligence officer for them by the name of and for the record i do not know japanese very well so if i'm i'm probably going to be butchering these and i don't mean to <laughs> but this guy's name is haru and that's h-i-r-o-o onada and that's o-n-o-d-a hero 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 from he hero remember hero from that what was that show uh Her heroes heroes oh it was hero okay. yeah <laughs> yeah the first two seasons the first two seasons are quite good excellent and after that after that i don't know because i quit watching it. so what, uh, okay. what's going on with this hero well as you know uh you know japan 
would be the main reason that America got into the war when they bombed Pearl Harbor. And then it ended up at the end, Japan surrendered in 1945. Mm -hmm. However, Onada did not. You know, he was an intelligence officer for the Imperial Japanese Army. And he was stationed in the Philippines, the island of Labang, Labang Island, in 1944 when he's about 22. His The orders that he was given were to sabotage, uh, disrupt, just pretty much be an annoyance to the enemy, and to never surrender or to take his own life. Because, you know, a lot of the Japanese would do that. They would take their own lives at some point. Yeah. Be kamikazes and that sort of thing. So the Allies get to the Philippines at around not in around 1945. And they pretty much just tear through whatever the Imperial Japanese Army is there to the point where the all that was left was Anata and three others. But they did not surrender. Instead, they ran off into the hills. And that's where they would hide out. Now, while they were there, they would live in the hills for years. There's jungles and all kinds of stuff there. Uh, they would eat bananas to survive. They would uh, drink coconut milk. Uh, they would uh, steal cattle. And also, they would shoot at the police. <laughs> Uh, because uh, they believed, funny, man. <laughs> yeah, because they believed that they were still at war. Really, they didn't uh, realize that the war was over. No, see, the, actually, what happened in around 1945, towards the end of that year, uh, they would actually drop leaflets on the island, uh, and they were hoping to let Onada know that the war was over and that they were supposed to surrender. But Onada assumed it was like a trick, like they were trying to. <laughs> the enemy was sending those, you know, oh like why God. would. I mean, why would the, the Japanese surrender? You know, he's kind of thinking that way. That's amazing. So while they're in the hills hiding, one by one, the, the his uh, comrades would kind of be picked off. And by that, I mean, in 1950, so this is five years later, they're still hiding out in the hills. One of his uh, soldiers surrendered. Yeah. In 1954, so that's four years after that, Another was killed by a search party. There was a search party that was sent out to find them. And anybody that got near them, they would start shooting at because they thought it was the enemy. <laughs> okay. So he was he was killed by that. And then in 1972, his last companion that was with him was shot by the police when they were trying to disrupt and destroy, uh, destroy crops on a farm that was there, a local farm. Oh, there. my God. 1972. So you're talking about from 1945 to 1972. Yeah. Now, do you did do you, in in your research? Did all of his men all think that the war was still going on? Were some of them like, "This guy's crazy"? What the heck? Let us go. It, for, from from all accounts, it seems like they all felt that uh, the war was not over. Oh my I mean, God. they had a, a huge sense of pride, and by this time, obviously, Onada had actually become sort of a legend. <laughs> You know, I mean, you hear about this guy in the hills that you can't even go near <laughs> and that he's a Japanese soldier hasn't surrendered. And it's been while getting on 20 years now. I wonder what their mindset was when they would look up and see, like, as planes continue to change and, and progress, like the planes going overhead, just even commercial flights. Yeah. yeah, well, see, this was a small island in the Philippines, too. So he didn't even see a lot of the big uh, changes that were happening. Uh, and. At this point of the story, we're going to bring in a new character, and this person is, and again, this is a Japanese name, so I'm sorry, is Norio, and that's N-O-R-I-O, Suzuki. I know that one. <laughs> Suzuki's his last name. And he's considered a young adventurer, and by that I mean he had three goals in his life, and he wanted to do them in this order. His first goal, he wanted to find Onada, 
because he's a legend and he wanted to meet him. His second goal oh, was God. he wanted to find he wanted to find a panda in the wild. Uh, <laughs> and his third goal, which is my favorite, was he wanted to find the abominable snowman. Oh my God! If you tell me he goes into the jungle and Onada comes out riding a panda next to the abominable snowman, I'm done. Well, that'd be the greatest story in history. <laughs> but, so February twentieth in nineteen seventy four. Suzuki finally does find Onada in the jungles of Lubang. And what was even more strange at the time is they actually become pretty good friends. Really? Yeah. So, of course, it gets to the point where Suzuki's like, hey, uh, you know, Japan is really kind of worried about you. (laughs) You know, we're (laughs) obviously, I mean, he's such a well-known name by this time. But they're like, you know, the war is over. He tried to convince them this. Now, is he by himself now? No more of his men are with him? Yeah, he's by himself by this point. Oh, God. Uh, But Onada still refused to surrender unless uh, his superior officer or- would order him to. So Suzuki, what he does is he actually goes back to Japan and he tracks down Anata's uh, commanding officer by the name of, again, this is Japanese, uh, Major Yoshimi uh, uh, Taniguchi, who who by this time was obviously quite, he's you know, he's really getting up there in age. Dude's just chilling and on he, a beach somewhere trying to relax his no, last days. He's, he actually was an elder, elderly man who worked in a bookstore, but you're close. <laughs> put, put the war years behind him. Yeah, yeah, by far, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he just wanted to put in the new <laughs> copy crazy. of Harry Potter. Yeah, so they, so they, what they would do, Suzuki got him to fly back with him. So now it's Suzuki and Taniguchi are back in Lubang where, uh, where he officially told Onada to surrender. And this is 29 years after <laughs> Japan had actually surrendered and the war had ended. And he finally does uh, surrender his sword. Wow. Now, the story's not done yet. Onada was pardoned eventually because during this time when he was in a jungle, him and his companions had actually killed around 30 people Jeez. in these shootouts and all that kind of stuff. But, of course, he had become a hero by this time. <laughs> And he would eventually move back to Japan, and you will never guess what he uh, started to do with his life. He uh, he worked at Tokyo Disney. No, close. <laughs> he would actually he would actually go on to teach kids wilderness survival skills. No way. This is no joke. And what's even more crazy is that he only recently passed away in 2014. He was 91 what? years old. Really? Yeah. And I have a footnote to this story. Now, you remember the man who became friends with Anata, Suzuki, yeah. Morio Suzuki? Yeah. Well, okay. So, he here's remember the three goals I told you? He would find, he wanted to find Onada, he wanted to find a wild panda, and he wanted to find the abominable snowman. Uh-oh. Well, obviously, like you know, he found Onada and was very important into helping him come to a surrender. He would actually eventually find a wild panda, and then in 1986, Uh-oh. he would take a trip to the Himalayas. And look for the abominable snowman, but sadly, an avalanche would claim his life. Oh no! Yes, so he got to do two of the three, and he went out trying to do the third. Dude, that dude is my hero. Number one, number two. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Imagine what it would be like if you're a little, like you're a young kid. You're like ten or eleven year old Johnny. And you're wanting to get, you know, sign up for, were you ever in the Boy Scouts? No, but I, I know what it is. Okay. Well, I'm just saying, like, yeah. did you ever want to be? Were you ever into that kind of thing? 
No, I don't know if you know this, but I have like a retro video game podcast, so that's kind of what I was. Just gives you an idea. I know of it that I had friends who were. Well, I'm just saying, can you imagine being that kid at that age, wanting to get into survival and like being out and camping, and they're like, okay, this is the guy that's going to teach you stuff, and it's this (laughs) dude. He's all grizzled and like, this man killed thirty people. He's like a. He would be like a weird, scary (laughs) legend by that time. Like, he speaks and no one talks, dude. Everyone's scared to piss him off. He's like, he's like Degum Wolverine. That is just the craziest story I've ever heard. I never heard of that before. Yeah, it is very wild. I had many different sources for this. Uh, but, you know, this guy was just, I don't want to say he was, like, amazing because he did kill people who were <laughs> technically innocent. But, you know, he didn't really know that or accept that fact. He's, you know, he still had, was under the belief that they were still at war. And he said that, and they said that uh, in one of the articles I read, when he actually made it back to Japan, he was really overwhelmed by how much Japan had changed by then. Uh, you know, he had all these different uh, technologies and cars and kind of stuff that he just wasn't used to. And he actually, eventually, at the beginning, he actually would go to Brazil and become a cattle farmer because he wanted to get away from all that wow. until he eventually moved back to Japan. So, yeah, I was gonna say I thought I thought you were gonna say he like went off into the wilds and became became like a wilderness man again. Yeah, yeah. No, sadly he didn't. Now that, but yeah, I, I almost want to do the whole thing about Suzuki because I thought he was just as fascinating. Yeah, no kidding. That's an amazing. That's a great story. It's like a two for one. Boy, yeah, those those the listeners are lucky. They got me. They weren't lucky for me. They they had to put it up with that nonsense. But they got two good stories out of yours for it. I don't know. I think you're set the table for mine. So it's a <laughs> one, it's a one, two, three punch. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I thought mine was kind of cool. It wasn't odd, not too odd, at least. Um, I feel I, no. It's still very strange. I mean, it is strange. You in, thought it was- in, in how that law or or why such change came into law was based on a story of. Uh, men going out hunting for a ghost like what makes you think you're yeah. going to shoot a ghost yeah that's my that's the only thing i was trying to think of <laughs> if you believe ghosts are real and you know they may or may not be who knows why would you think bullets would work <laughs> do you not know anything about ghosts <laughs> you know if carter were here he'd be bringing up proton packs yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> he'd be telling but, i mean why would that be your first thought i'm going to shoot a ghost it's, I mean, it's insane i don't know um yeah. all right man that was great I really enjoyed your story. That was that was an awesome one. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. All right, man. Uh, let's let's uh, let's let's wrap up the show here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go first because uh, you usually bring us out, and it's kind of awkward if you go first and I go, and then you try to bring us out. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna get all my stuff out of the way, and I'll let you do your thing. Um, all right. Again, this is Chris Chavez. Uh, you can listen to me on another podcast if you like, Back Issues Comic Book Podcast. You can find it on our network, BICBP Radio. Dot com. You'll find this one, as well as a number of other entertaining shows, uh, one of which Johnny's on. He mentioned it earlier. If you were paying attention, you know what we're talking about. Um, go ahead and follow us on Facebook, History Creeps Podcast. We're also on Instagram, uh, History Creeps. Uh, that's odd. I think we're going to have our own little That's Odd Instagram account, too, because I think it's fun putting little pictures of our historical stories up. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, you can find my other show, Retro Blessed. It's where me and my buddy Trevor talk about your old school video games, like your Nintendos on up to your Sega Genesis and such. Uh, you find us on uh, iTunes and Stitcher as well, and on this very same network. Also, uh, you can find my art on Johnnyism28 on Instagram. Uh, please feel free to uh, give me money for art, because that's great if you do, and it makes me uh, a less sad of a person. 
And also, uh, you can follow uh, Retro Bliss on Instagram at Retro Bliss. I believe that's all everything I have to say. I think. Anyway, uh, for Chris Chavez, for Johnny Townsend, and uh, for that ghost that was shot, um, stay odd.